This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Nine years ago, I covered the removal of the Great Works Dam on the Penobscot River. It was one of the dams removed from the river as part of an effort that had taken years and much coalition building. Recently, some of those involved in the Penobscot River restoration project got together to talk about how the river ecosystem has changed over the years since the dams were removed, and the news is very good. We're going to listen in on that discussion today, but first a quick trip back to June of 2012. This is Penobscot Nation Chief Kirk Francis. So to the Penobscot people, today is about much more than simply removing a dam. Today signifies the most important conservation project in our 10,000 year history on this great river that we share a name with and that has provided for our very existence for again thousands of years. Returning these species of fish to their historical habitat, we will see the river continue to come back to life in a major way, and for our people, the ability to exercise cultural practices that have been a part of us since time began. As the first stewards of this river, it is in our DNA to protect and enhance the quality of this great river system, and this project, for the first time, has allowed the Penobscot to participate in an effort that gets to the very heart of that responsibility of protecting the ecological condition of our homeland. A homeland and a responsibility that is as ancient as we are as a people. The Penobscot River and our people have been through a lot of trying times together. Industrial development and unbalanced practices once had this river extremely sick. It seemed our complaints and efforts to get it back on its feet fell on deaf ears. Today though it is obvious that people are listening in a very diverse way and understand the importance of not simply taken from this great resource, but also given back. I'm also amazed at the collaboration of the many groups that helped make today a reality. This project should be the example of how people with sometimes very different agendas and worldviews can work on a common goal while mitigating concerns and finding resolution. The biggest example is the proof that hydropower development and natural resource protection can exist in the same watershed when done responsibly, which results in the benefits of all segment to the benefit of all segments of society as this project provides. This is truly a win-win effort for everybody, and you all deserve a round of applause for this day. So for this, so for the people of this place, the Penobscot. We cannot thank you all enough for the hope we now have for this great river and who we are as a people. Again, the thank yous go to many in an effort that not only gives us hope locally, but globally as well. On behalf of the Penobscot people and the greatest river in the world, thank you to everyone involved and enjoy today as a celebration that is well deserved because this project truly makes a difference for so many. And somewhere at this very moment, our ancestors are smiling and just a few miles up this river, there is an entire community celebrating and appreciative of this project that not only helps revitalize a river, but also the great people of the Penobscot Nation. Thank you all so very much. So is everybody all set? Jeff Cannon, are you set? Carl, are you set? All right. I hear you're going to wrap the river a little bit later. All right, so... You're hearing is the countdown for the machinery to start chipping away at the dam, the Great Works Dam removal project on Monday. 
That was recorded back in 2012. Here's some more background and an update on where things stand today directly from some of the people who've been involved. These are excerpts from a panel discussion called Celebrate Progress for the Penobscot River that was recorded on May 20th. My name is Todd Martin. I'm the Outreach Coordinator at the Natural Resources Council of Maine. And we're happy to be uh, here with you today to share stories about the successful recovery of the Penobscot River, thanks to the Penobscot River Restoration Trust, which was uh, an effort, a uh, multi-year effort to remove dams from the Penobscot watershed to restore uh, native fish populations. Uh, and that was a project of the Penobscot River Restoration Trust. Uh, the, the trust is a nonprofit uh, organization um, and many of the organizations who are part of the Penobscot River Restoration Trust are here today to share stories with you about the effort. Um, so the trust includes American Rivers, the Nature Conservancy in Maine, Atlantic Salmon Federation, the Natural Resources Council of Maine, Maine Audubon, Trout Unlimited, uh, the Penobscot Indian Nation, uh, and others as well. Um, so many of the folks from those organizations are here today to, to share uh, success stories uh, from the project. Uh, many of the stories you'll hear today uh, are captured in a new book from uh, Peter Taylor uh, called From the Mountains to the Sea. Um, and this book is currently available for purchase um, from Owlsport Press. Uh, many inspiring stories uh, about restoring Maine's largest watershed. So certainly check out that book after today's program. I'm going to turn it over now to Laura Rose Day, who's the director of the Seven Lakes Alliance in the Belgrade Lakes area, uh, to tell us uh, about the Penobscot River Restoration Project. Laura was uh, the director of the, uh, the Penobscot Project, and so she's here today to tell us about how this project came to be. So take it away, Laura. Thank you, Todd. Um, hello, everyone, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. It's always um, uh, wonderful to take any occasion to um, pause on the really phenomenal um, recovery of the Penobscot River that, of course, is uh, a work in progress. So I'm happy to, to share with you um, a little bit about how, um, how we got to the point where we are today, where you can go um, in the upper Penobscot River to places where uh, fish are traveling that have not done so for more than a century. We think of rivers as a place where maybe we drive over a bridge and, you know, there's that water body below us. But the rivers, uh, the Penobscot and all the rivers in Maine are um, arteries between the waters and the headwaters and the mountains and the ocean. So we're, we're, we're talking about a watershed that encompasses more than a quarter of the state of Maine. So uh, when an Atlantic salmon or, or other uh, fish migrates uh, from the sea to travel upstream, um, it obviously travels along the shore, you know, past the shoreline upriver. And uh, historically, that would have been um, a free swim. They would have done what they naturally do and moved up the river through uh, free flowing waters. And a river that's free flowing is oxygenated. Um, there are, there is the kind of substrate that insects need. Insects feed birds and all of the other wildlife 
um, that makes um, this region so special and on which all life depended. Unlike um, the Pacific Northwest, for instance, where we think of multiple species of salmon and um, they are kind of the, the biomass, uh, the bulk of the food and the energy in the system. In our systems, it's the herring, uh, American shad, alewives, blueback herring that provide that biomass that fuels everything. Perhaps the fish that we hear most about are uh, 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 sea run Atlantic salmon. They're anadromous fish, they um, spawn uh, upstream uh, and they have to get from the ocean uh, upstream to headwaters in order to do that. So the Penobscot River um, became much more um, imaginable in people's eyes after the Kennebec River was reopened with the removal of the Edwards Dam in Augusta, Maine. And uh, you may have heard a lot recently about um, efforts to recover, um, take the next major step in recovering the Kennebec River, um, but it certainly was an inspiration for, uh, the, for the Penobscot. So why did we do the Penobscot project? What happened um, to the circle of life in the Penobscot River is that the river A was polluted, um, B there was uh, major um, overfishing, and C, and the biggest single significant remaining issue um, in recent history is um, the construction of dams on the river. So for many, many decades, there have been uh, discussions, arguments, different um, envisioning of what, how to um, reopen the river so that life could come back. And um, that included in the 1980s, a proposal to build a dam at the site of the slide I showed you earlier, the the river that clearly looks like a boulder-strewn, um, uh, free-flowing river at Basin Mills. Uh, there was an effort by uh, many different folks along the river to stop the construction of that dam, and in fact, it was defeated. But the result was that the river was still um, in a state of uh, having too many dams on it. Uh, the lowermost dam, so when a fish would swim up the river, uh, it would come to Vesey. And this was the VZ Dam with the powerhouse. Uh, it was about 21 feet high. The fish passage at this dam uh, was almost non-existent. Just, a, just a, sh a short bit up the river, the Great Works Dam. Then above that, the Milford Dam. So these dams were in a, a, a very like 10 mile stretch of river, very short distance. And as you can imagine, um, the fish passage by the time you got up to the Milford Dam um, was, uh, was um, again, almost non-existent. So at the Milford Dam, which is the dam that's just below uh, the Penobscot Indian Nation, um, there was a, um, a fishway, but it was not very effective. So the long and short of it is very few fish um, could travel upstream to spawn. The dam at the top, uh, the final dam involved in the Penobscot project is the Howland Dam. Uh, and while it was about 35 miles upriver, uh, the river stretch in between uh, was almost devoid of native fish. So um, the power company that owned the dams um, really did not, because they didn't get to build their dam at Basin Mills, they were not able to increase gen energy generation as they'd sought to. Folks who cared about fish and wildlife um, did not uh, secure 
passage for those animals and were not able to improve life on the river um, through those prior proceedings. From the Penobscot Nation's perspective, and you're going to hear from John Banks in just a few moments, uh, still fish that uh, traditionally, um, historically got up uh, all the way up the river uh, still could not. So um, the company that owned the dams um, with leadership from the Penobscot Nation and then uh, conservation groups, uh, which you heard earlier, um, got together and uh, really decided to have a discussion that would begin with what would we do if we had it all to do over again? How might we balance a common vision that would include uh, life in the river that was vibrant, where we could have fisheries, uh, traditional cultural activities, tourism, um, sustainable business, and uh, allow, uh, allow life to come back on the river? I think of this as being very much a people's project to help reconnect us and everything else um, to life that belongs um, in this river. Uh, we removed the VZ Dam, removed the Great Works Dam, because those two lowermost dams basically uh, basically put a chokehold on, on um, life moving up the river. At the Milford Dam, uh, a new fish uh, elevator, uh, which was a, um, a state-of-the-art facility, was uh, was uh, put in and um, is passing fish and, and other folks can talk about the details of that, but that's been uh, quite successful, allowing fish to move up that long expanse of river that you see all the way up to Howland. And at Howland, um, a, um, uh, a, a fish bypass was built that basically as the years are moving on, looks more and more like a natural stream. So the dam stayed in, the water level uh, came down just a small bit, and the um, fish can now uh, freely pass as if they're swimming through a stream. That's been tested and has been quite successful. Uh, the partner um, groups in the Penobscot Nation have since the, these dams were removed and the bypass built, uh, done a lot of work to open up uh, headwater streams and uh, the river continues to recover. And I'm really honored to have been uh, part, part of, um, of, of helping um, the team make it happen. So that's the background, and uh, I will turn it over to John. This is John Banks, Director of the Department of Natural Resources for the Penobscot Nation. Thank you for that great presentation, Laura, and thank you all to the participants today for joining us on this beautiful day. Um, so I was thinking about, like, when I was growing up, and uh, I was talking to my grandmother one time. Uh, who lived with us, and she was talking about her father, my great-grandfather, and how he, when he went to have to buy his first hunting and fishing license for the state of Maine for 25 cents, he was upset and confused. He didn't know why he had to pay the state of Maine 25 cents to continue providing food for his family uh, and um, <clears throat> his extended family on the reservation. So I think that speaks to our history on the river, uh, being able to obtain our sustenance for, as Laura mentioned, 10,000 years. And uh, our tribe has uh, always uh, 
uh, always been involved with uh, trying to improve the ecological integrity of this watershed. And so the history books talk about how our tribal leaders traveled to the colonial government in Boston by canoe on the ocean to complain about the first dams being built in Maine uh, down on the Presumpscot River in the Portland area. So I think that, you know, that speaks to our long history of um, trying to address dams. And, you know, for thousands of years, our tribe depended on the Penobscot River watershed. It met all of our needs. It was um, our highways to get to wherever we needed to get to, to gather all of the materials for daily living, food, medicine, and materials for shelter, as well as carrying on commerce with neighboring uh, nations uh, through the watersheds. And then, uh, with the Industrial Revolution and the damming and polluting of the watershed, uh, all of that came to an abrupt halt. Uh, and it had an enormous impact on the cultural uh, integrity and the traditional uh, activities of the members of the Penobscot Nation. So to us, this project, the Penobscot River Restoration Project, is, is much, much more than a fisheries restoration program or an energy replacement program. It's really about our foundational relationship with the Penobscot River in a cultural and spiritual sense. So it's, it's really hard to express in words what uh, this project means to a lot of our tribal members, um, but it does give me a lot of hope that uh, so many folks like you have today on this panel were able to come together and uh, despite uh, differences that we may have on different things, we did uh, realize a common vision uh, for the future of this watershed, uh, recognizing the great potential that it has for restoration of those species of native fish. And so far, it looks like it's been pretty successful. Just recently, and I mean just within the past uh, week, uh, I had heard a story about a uh, fishermen uh, just below the Milford Dam who also witnessed a uh, sturgeon jumping uh, out of the out of the water similar to the one that uh, that Laura showed in her slide. Um, so I guess that's about all I have to say. I just uh, look forward to the the discussion continuing here. So thank you all. Thanks John and thanks Laura so much. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. This is a panel discussion sponsored by the Natural Resources Council of Maine and other organizations involved with the Penobscot River Restoration Project. It was recorded on May 20th. So my name is Kate Dempsey. I'm the Executive Director of the Nature Conservancy here in Maine, and I'm going to be facilitating our conversation. My day job when the project was in its full Full force was working with our federal partners and and um, kind of going between our our delegation in Washington D.C. and the work up here in the state and making it making it real in D.C. So that was my day job, um, and so I meant, meant I got a lot of good trips with uh, these folks. Um, so Andy and Pete, will you just reintroduce yourselves? 
Sure. I'm Andy Good. I'm uh, Vice President of Operations for the Atlantic Salmon Federation here in the U.S. and we're based in Brunswick, Maine. But the Penobscot um, has been our focus really for the past 40 years in the state of Maine, even though we work across the whole state. And um, so with that, uh, I'll just leave this for there for now. Yeah, sure. Um, and I'm Pete Didesheim. I'm the Advocacy Director at the Natural Resources Council of Maine. NRCM uh, has been involved in this project since the beginning, working with uh, the various partners in front of us and many others. And we also were very involved in some dam removals on the Kennebec, including the Edwards Dam and on the tributary to the Kennebec, the Fort Halifax Dam, also a very important dam that was removed in 2008. It's amazing. And if you unbuild it, they will come, right? That's what we're seeing this season. So um, what for the folks in the audience, what we're gonna do is I'm gonna field a couple questions to our panelists, and then I'm watching the Q&A. But why don't we start with, um, you know, just anyone who wants to share, um, building on what John did, a personal reflection of why this, well, let me, what memory of the 16 plus years, plus the 10,000 years, John, of work um, stands out for you? What, you know, there are so many for each of you, um, but what, when, when you tell someone about it, what's a story you might tell? Andy, why don't you jump in? Well, sure. The, you know, for the Penobscot, as I said, we've been involved for a long time, but we're always playing defense. As Laura mentioned, we're fighting new dams. We're fighting the rebuilding of dams that have been breached. We're fighting mill discharges, everything like that. And, you know, the, the Kennebec sort of laid the groundwork when the Edwards Dam was removed to, for us to sort of take a look at trying to rebalance these rivers and uh, trying to sort of go on the offensive, for lack of a better word. But I think that the memory that I have um, was in an early meeting, probably 1999, uh, with the company and where, where Scott Hall came into the meeting and said, you know, we want to we want to find a balance on this river. And we had never heard that word balance because the Penobscot or any of these other big rivers in New England, there had never been a balance. They've always been managed as an industrial river. And, and this project has really dramatically changed that, uh, certainly on the Penobscot. And, and that, that balance, I think, is what kept the negotiations going. Um, you know, they, this was never straightforward. I mean, their vision for a balance and our vision for a balance was two different balances. Uh, but in the end, you know, we were able to stick together by having, you know, sort of some common themes. So uh, I, I still will always remember that when when he mentioned, I sort of remember the setting, you know, where he mentioned that the company was looking to find a seek a balance on the river. Thanks. Yeah. So this is well, this is a project that's it's been a long time in the in the works, and it's been literally a couple decades. So it's it's been a couple decades of really important moments. Um, the signing of the agreement, the removal of the dams, the celebration of the of the bypass um, in 2016, and on that morning in 2016 in June, when the bypass celebration was underway, I remember learning that the first tag salmon had just swam past us up the river, and it was probably the first salmon to do that in a hundred plus years. And then last summer, I learned that. Because of that Howland Bypass, salmon can now reach Gulf Hagus on the west branch of the Pleasant River. And they're doing that for the first time in 180 years. This is roughly 150 miles inland from the ocean. 
And Gulf Hagas is as far inland as salmon ever reached. Uh, on this watershed since the recession of the glaciers 16,000 years ago. So as a result of this project, salmon are reaching deep inland, which gives us just a glimpse of what once was. And that is quite exciting because the dams on our rivers have just caused so much disruption and fragmentation of what once was a deep connection between our inland waters and the ocean and the life that lives in those waters. Thanks, Pete. John or Laura, you wanna add? Yeah, uh, for me, one of the most exciting times as a tribal person uh, was during the VZ celebration uh, when our drum group uh, started drumming. I looked up and there were four adult eagles circling, circling uh, up above us. I guess they came out to check out to see what all the excitement was about. <laughs> But, They've been uh, waiting a long time for that moment. Or, um, you know, we see one or two, but rarely do you see three. And to me, that that sent a kind of a, you know, a sign that we're really on the right uh, the right path here. And uh, four eagles came out, circled while they were drumming. When they stopped drumming, the eagles were gone. Uh, so that was an amazing moment. Uh, I guess you would call that a spiritual moment for me. So, uh, yeah, that was it. That was one, one of many. <laughs> yeah, John, that's one. I That moment has stood out for me as well. And when I do my stump speech on the project, I often start with that image because it was so remarkable and it just hit us all, I think, standing there on the banks of the river in a, in a way that I don't think I had experienced as as someone who spends my days or used to spend my days to being a lobbyist, you don't think much about <laughs> the spiritual side. So thank you, Laura, having lived it every drop of every second, practically every minute of the day, I know it's impossible to pick one and you're on mute. So I'll let you go off mute and share another ref reflection. You know, I've been sitting here trying to choose and um, it's, it's hard um, because as we've, you know, we've been saying, this was really a, a process, right? This was the culmination and still um, uh, what the river is becoming again and turning back to is the, the, is a, you know, the culmination of many, many moments and kind of breakthroughs. And it's, we, it's important for all of us to celebrate them all. Um, I still, even though I'm not working on the Penobscot uh, now, um, I, I watch carefully, and every time that there's a, uh, a a new step forward, it's it's really exciting for me. Standing with John at the VZ Dam when um, you know the dams were removed, and um, the second dam up the river was removed first uh, for for reasons that had to do with fish passage. So the VZ Dam was the first, still the the first dam in the river. Um, and, uh, we were waiting until that moment when, uh, the dam, you know, really for the first time, significant water was flowing through that dam. And, uh, John and I were standing on a concrete abutment right above where that water was going to rush through. And it was powerful to stand and watch that water and know that that had not been able to happen for, um, you know, more than a century. 
And it was particularly, um, it was particularly moving to stand there with John. So. So, yeah. I want to say I, I was equally moved, <laughs> yeah, Laura. <me> too. <laughs> I was equally moved at that moment, Laura. And at the beginning of this, in your presentation, you said that you were honored to uh, be part of this project. Well, I want to say that you were much more than just part of this project, Laura, as the executive director. You were the one on the ground every day working with all of the, the people from the communities and talking with them, the municipalities, the, the uh, uh, town meetings that you went to in each of the towns. And you really just did such a fantastic job uh, on the education and outreach. You were on the ground every single day of that project. And that made a huge difference. So it was my honor to be standing there with you that day. Thank you. Well, let's, let's build upon that, John. And um, so those of you, not the Nature Conservancy, the rest of you were in the early stages of the project. And um, since I both joined you all, but also read the book and heard lots of stories, you know, there was those four or so years of negotiations. Um, and then building on what John said, you all then spent a good year my recollection is correct, um, going to communities, working with them, talking about the, the draft of the agreement. But then it, that work continued. What do you think, um, tell me a couple stories of those interactions, coffee table conversations or a town meeting um, that you began to feel like this is possible. Even as crazy as it was, there must have been moments where you said, okay, we, people are understanding what we're talking about. There might've been some, I know there were some hard yeah. stories too. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, I can share one of those. Um, just at, at the VZ, um, in VZ, where at the site where the dam used to be, it's very steep. And there's some houses that looked right down over the dam. One of our early discussions was with a woman who lived in a house that her, she had a huge bay window in her kitchen and it looked right at the dam. And uh, um, uh, Cheryl Daigle, who was our outreach coordinator at the time, and I went to visit with her and we were going to tell her about the project and what we were envisioning. And she motioned to us. You could see she was emotional right from the moment we, we walked in the door. And uh, she motioned for us to go into the kitchen near that window. And um, she really uh, had to hold it together. You know, her lip was trembling when she was, she pointed down and said, do you know what my grandkids call that? That's grandma's waterfall. And um, that was, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that was um, an impactful moment because um, we could see whether it, comported with our, our vision of what the river should return to, uh, what the river had meant to her and her family was important to her. And um, so we gradually got to know each other um, uh, over the years. And then there was another time when I was um, in that same spot with her. And she said, you know, I think 
this is going to be okay. You know, I, 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 I like this. I, you know, I, um, I, I'd like to know more. I never knew that sturgeon could, would swim up this river. I never even knew what a sturgeon was. So um, th- those are moments when, you know, you're, you're making real, real progress. And there are also moments when, you know, you're understanding uh, people, you know, you can't just um, tell people how it ought to be. Um, if you want people to really um, possibly support the, the vision of the future, then um, you have to engage with them in a real conversation. So that's what we try to do. I, I might add that you know, there are four salmon clubs on the Penobscot and there, there was a long tradition going back to I think 1912 where the first salmon that was caught on the river was taken to the president of the United States. And uh, but it was a tough sell to the salmon fishermen, the salmon clubs, because recreational fishing for Atlantic salmon was completely stopped in 1999 because the runs had gotten so low. So they were pretty pessimistic. And then when we came along and tried to start selling them on this idea of removing dams, they they just couldn't believe it because those dams had always been there. And they just they just couldn't imagine what the river would even look like. And they said it would never happen. However, you know, we had a few visionaries in those salmon clubs like Bucky Owen and Bill Townsend and uh, uh, and some others, Ralph Keefe and, and such. And, um, you know, we were able to roll out that framework project, start talking about it. And, um, you know, they slowly came around. We had a grassroots fundraiser. You know, we initially raised $10 million. Um, but, you know, at the local level, uh, those salmon, largely those salmon clubs raised $50,000 towards that. And then, so that's when the tide started to turn. You know, people, you know, started, you know, making small no donations, probably large for them in many cases. And uh, when they got on board, then it was, you know, I knew we were, we we're on our way. Pete, why don't I get your voice in, but others will add to it. Can you talk about um, how, one of you were talking about the balance. How did we balance the need for hydro or the existence of hydro in the river system um, and our need to open up the main stem dam? And how does that, and building on another question there, how does that apply to other things we as a community and with many partners are thinking about things going forward? Well, in some ways this watershed was unique and it created a a special opportunity where kind of at the simplest level, we wanted to move the generation off the main tributary, main uh, stem, and move it onto the onto the side tributaries, and we were able to do that here um, by repowering and raising the head pond of, of other generations. So the the final outcome is actually, I think, um, no net loss or even more generation while you are opening up the through fare for the fish to get to where they want to be. That doesn't always happen, but it's important to understand the larger system of hydropower in the state. We have a thousand dams. We have 110 or so of those that generate power. So there's like 900 dams built on every gradient on every river and stream. And most of the generation is from the large dams that are way up in the watersheds. And most of the harm is from the dams that are closest to the ocean. And uh, that's where they're creating the biggest obstacles in the gauntlet that fish can't get through to reach the fresh water that they need. So most of our focus with the Edwards Dam, with the Fort Halifax Dam, with many other projects have been these these dams that are non-generating or don't generate very much power 
and they're closest to the ocean and they're the most harmful for the river. Um, we can retain the overwhelming preponderance of our hydropower uh, because most of it's being generated deep inland at the larger dams. And uh, Pete, if I, I might answer, but I will see if anyone else wants to jump in first, just because I think it's so relevant, the negotiations last session on the renewable portfolio standard really recognized that fact that those Absolutely. upper dams are way up and they're producing. We're not talking about removing those. What we're talking about is the ones where there's, where fish are literally backed up at the dam, trying, you know, banging their heads, trying to, to move up. Um, so they can get to the fresh water they need for their life cycle. Yeah, I mean, the fact is that many of these fish we're trying to restore in the Penobscot, there are 11 different species, won't use conventional fish waste, whereas a, a salmon might, you know, or a herring might, but, you know, species like sturgeon and shad, they just simply will not use fish waste. And so, um, but by removing these lower two dams, we restored 100% of the historic habitat for sturgeon and striped bass and shad and things like that. And, uh, you know, we're seeing those numbers increase. I think just to give you a brief glimpse, I mean, just in the five years, river herring, alewives and bluebacks have gone from zero to about 3 million. Uh, Atlantic salmon on our eight year upward trend. Shad have gone from under a thousand to over 11,000. Sea lampreys they, and uh, other species all set records last year. So we're really on a really nice trajectory here. Andy, while you have the mic, can you um, tell folks a couple places around the state that people could see uh, this kind of migration that's happening right this second in well sh yeah sure we're in the peak of the of the alewife migration uh the river herring the bluebacks come in just after the alewife so they're just starting but certainly at, you know, up in bradley maine the leonard's mills uh logging museum or main forest and logging museum that site is open to the public and that has a run of about 600,000 fish there's been about 300,000 that have come through in the last couple of days that we've we've seen um you know, you've got Damariscotta Mills, you know, down here in the mid-coast area. Uh, Bristol, Maine has a new uh, new fishway as well. So there's different ones. You know, where in the Penobscot, we have continued to build fishways or remove dams in some of these headwater ponds and lakes. A lot of them really aren't that open to the public. Um, um, but uh, the one that... Um, in uh, in Bradley is really an excellent one. It's really, it's a work of art as well. It's sort of like a mini dam of John, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I was just gonna mention to folks, there is a, there's a kiosk outside of the dam at Milford where you can go and uh, you don't even have to go in, you know, in the mill, I mean, in the dam building itself, you go to the parking lot, it's outside of the security fence and you can, watch uh the video i mean the the real-time camera of the fish in the uh in the fish lift so that's a good opportunity to actually watch what's going through in the fish lift um, and there's also a uh alwife run at uh, pushaw lake and immediately below the outlet to pushaw lake in uh i think it's in glenburn or Hudson, uh, and I know Andy Good in the uh, ASF was involved with that project, so he may have more information about that. But I suspect that you could see some alewives there now at the at the outlet of Pushaw Lake. 
you, you can. It's a little bit hard to get to. Uh, that fishway, that's sort of interesting because as people probably know this year, our rivers are extremely low uh, and it isn't just this year. This is the fourth year in a row where we've sort of had very low water uh, towards the end of May. Uh, and as a result, this push off fishway, last year we went in and rebuilt the lower section of it and lowered it down 18 inches. Because when it was built, it was based on a range of flows. But since then, we've seen the range of flows actually drop. And you know, this all has to do with climate change. Um, but again, you know, that it's hard to get to push all, you may have to use Google maps and a few other, other creative things and you need a four wheel drive to get there, but it's probably the largest single run on the East coast going into any pond or lake. There's over a million fish that are going into it in a three week period or going through it. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. This is a panel discussion sponsored by the Natural Resources Council of Maine and other organizations involved with the Penobscot River Restoration Project. It was recorded on May 20th. The speakers were John Banks, Director of the Department of Natural Resources for the Penobscot Indian Nation, Laura Rose Day, former Director of the Penobscot River Restoration Project, Kate Dempsey, State Director of the Nature Conservancy in Maine, Pete Didesheim, Advocacy Director for the Natural Resources Council of Maine, and Andy Good, Vice President of U.S. Programs for the Atlantic Salmon Federation. Yeah. Kate, I'm glad you used the word migration because this really is a great migration and unfortunately it's not particularly visible. Um, We've just mentioned the few places where you can see it, but um, they've already counted 1.2 million alewives going through the Benton Falls Fishway just in the last like week. And there's a new record that's been set up at at the St. Croix of of a huge number, like 400,000 that have gone through. And they, that number hasn't been matched in decades at this point in the cycle. So millions and millions of fish in a relatively short period are moving through the waters to find their habitat. And it's, it's really quite an extraordinary surge of life. It's unfortunate that we can't really see as much of it as we'd like to, but when you get a glimpse of it, it is amazing it's really worth traveling to these few places that Andy has mentioned. And John. Laura? Thanks, I agree, yeah. Pete. <laughs> just build, building on what Pete just said also, um, you know, this is food, right? I mean, this is food. People really don't, you know, we hear a lot about, and it's, it's awesome, you know, the local food movement. This is local food uh, mm-hmm. for not just for, you know, for people, but for wildlife and all of these fish um, they are, as you know, the former commissioner of marine resources, George Lapointe, used to say, you know, this is the um, kind of uh, Purina Chow of the of the ocean. You know, these are the um, this is what feeds everything, uh, not just uh, um, other fish, but birds and you know all the things we talked about in the beginning. Um, I wanted to just reflect on the climate change um, issue because, to the extent that people say the dams are, um, you know, uh, you know they're carbon free and therefore, you know, don't oppose, don't remove dams because they're good in terms of climate change. Um, I just want to point out that even locally, let alone the fact that dams around the world sometimes put off, their impoundments put off a huge amount of carbon. So there's that issue. But even locally and even just on the Penobscot, if you have dams low down on the river, they keep fish from getting to cooler waters upstream. 
So like at the VZ Dam, fish used to pile up below the dam. And when they couldn't find anywhere to go, they would go up the nearest small tributary, one of which ended up behind a bunch of parking lots. So and, and fish died there because of that. Um, and also on the Penobscot, there are a lot of um, cold waters uh, that are coming in from aquifers. So there are deep holes that are very cold. And if you have dams below the, you know, blocking those, fish can't get to those habitats. So um, I just would would caution everyone to, um, you know, to remember that it's not um, that's it's not simple. Um, let's do thanks, Laura, and that leads us to our next question. But I'm, we're going to need to pick up so that we have um, a lot more, a few more questions that I really want to make sure we get to. So I'm going to go uh, to. Pete, for the Amy's question, Amy Brown, if you were able to remove any other existing dam and then Andy, you get to add and anyone else um, in Maine today, which would be the most important ones, I'm going to say, to remove next? Uh, well, I would say the four dams uh, that are on the Kennebec that are between Waterville and Skowhegan are um, causing severe damage. NRCM joined with Conservation Law Foundation and, and Maine Rivers to announce a uh, intent to sue uh, the owners of those dams for the risk they pose to the survival of Atlantic salmon. And there should have been restoration in that watershed that, that was intended to follow the removal of the Edwards Dam. And we have really a tale of two rivers. Below Waterville, we've got, you know, we've got leaping sturgeon, we've got millions of fish, we've got shad that are, that are you know, a remarkable opportunity for for shad fishing, and then above those dams, the fish can't pass. You have to truck them all the way up to the sandy. Um, so those dams are very high priority. Thanks. Um, all right, so this is how I'm gonna go team. So Laura, will you answer Sarah's question that I'll read, and then John and Andy, I want you to answer our friend Edie Smith's question. So Sarah's question is, as a follow-up question, if we wanted action on our, our own river, wherever that may be, what would be some first steps? What do you what do you advise folks, Laura? You've done this all over the country. Or advise folks all over the country. Well, honestly, one of the first things that I would do is uh, look to some of the organizations that are on the on the um, on, on the call today and, and also um, you know, John at Penobscot Nation, it depends on where you are. And there are probably some um, some folks locally who have, um, you know, and this is a great thing too. 20 years ago, this was like unimaginable stuff. <laughs> and now, you know, when we think about uh, reopening an Ariana River, you can look around and see lots of places where it's been done successfully. So there are many more people who know how, how to do it. But um, one of the first things that you want to do is uh, gather information. Um, you want to you want to know um, have as much uh, uh, and and when I say you know scientific information you you can have citizen science you know I think at like the Union River and what Downey Salmon Federation has done there having people just go and take photos and see where fish are piling up against the dam and can pass you know get a lot of information about um, uh, the problem that needs to be addressed. And uh, you can reach out to dam owners if they're willing to talk with you. Um, you can talk to the depart folks in the Department of Marine Resources to get more information about um, your dam. And then there's a 
There are regulatory processes that you can go through if you get to that point. Not all, so dams have different, um, uh, each dam has its own status in terms of whether it's a non-power generating dam or a power generating dam and there are different pathways. If you go to the main DEP website, um, there is information on um, dam regulation that has some uh, pretty straightforward steps that you can uh, follow as well. So um, that that would be my first, um, that would be a, a start. Thanks, Lauren. Just as yeah. a reference again, um, as Pete mentioned, a lot of the dams are not regulated, they're not producing hydroelectric energy. And so there's a whole different strategy that you touched on, but that's the first question you need to find out, I think, perhaps. Um, so Andy and John, and this is, thanks for this great question um, and the compliments on the, the photos. Um, what are the next steps for the river? Are there plans in place for keeping forward movement? And yes, I know is the answer and love yes. for you to reflect on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, since this project was completed five years ago, there's been another 15 tributary projects, fish passage projects completed. So we can we continue to look for opportunities to construct fishways, to remove dams, to fix undersized road crossings. Next year in 2022, um, the Atlantic Salmon Federation, the Nature Conservancy, and some of the groups are going to be building a fishway way up the head of the Mattawamkeag. Um, it's going to be the largest river restoration project ever undertaken in this country in the upper, and it's gonna happen in the upper Penobscot. And it's gonna open up access to 9,000 acres of spawning habitat for alewives and 137 river miles. So uh, there continues to be a lot of, you know, more work needs to be done, but it is being done. John? Yeah, in addition to what Andy mentioned, there's going to be a large effort on the east branch of the Penobscot to restore salmon. Uh, there's some uh, groups working together to bring some uh, adult salmon uh, up into the east branch of the Penobscot before they spawn and release them. And hopefully that will help jumpstart uh, or continue the restoration of salmon on the east branch. There's also uh, another main stem dam on the Penobscot that's just getting underway in terms of relicensing. That would be the West Enfield Dam. And then there's a whole suite of dams up on the, on the West Branch of the Penobscot that are gonna be coming up for relicensing as well. So those are some of the projects that we'll be working on uh, at the tribe. We're also supporting the efforts that uh, Pete mentioned down on the, the Kennebec River. I think it's important to get those lower lower main stem dams uh, addressed on the Kennebec. Thanks, um, John. I'm uh, just looking at the questions. What I think we're going to do is we've got about three minutes, so I'm going to wrap. Um, if if the panelists would look at the questions and if there's any you can answer on the fly in these last minutes, please do. Um, Let's wrap by going around the, the room, so to speak, our rooms. Um, and, you know, what it's, we worked together for 16 years. And we've talked about many other ways we're all working together now. Um, for each of you, what was a key ingredient? Like, without being Pollyannish, <laughs> well, you can be Pollyannish should you so choose, but. Um, you know, what message do you hope with the book that we wrote together 
comes out because how so that others can wherever they are in the world learn from this project anyone can start well i i can oh, go ahead I actually, I'll just just start quickly. I think, for, at least for us, I mean, Atlantic Salmon Federation has traditionally been single species focused. Uh, the science told us that we really need to focus on watershed health and and all these other species, the herring, the shad that salmon co-evolved with. And by doing that, we could also bring in a lot more partners, a lot more resources. And so, I, I think a holistic approach to river restoration oops, is uh, is pretty critical uh, going forward. So I'll just say that uh, the power of imagination is really important. Uh, I think with the Edwards Dam removal, people imagined a river that was different and it came to be and it was good and it was one of the most significant dam removals heard around the planet. And I think it opened up our imagination to other possibilities. And just as a plug for Peter Taylor's book, which really is a wonderful book, it's a great read uh, from the mountains to the sea. His first sentence on page one is, imagine a river teeming with fish. John? I wanted to respond to one of the questions in the Q&A that Su uh, Susan uh, put forward. The answer to her question is yes, the Wolfden mining proposal does threaten the headwaters of the west branch of the Mattawamkeag uh, River. Thanks. Laura, anything you want to add? I feel like we could do these two, for two hours, Pete. <laughs> Pete and Todd, come on. We got to do two hour conferences. Go ahead, Laura. Yes, there was a question earlier about whether there have been up um, uh, river, rivers reopens in other places that were inspired by the Penobscot project. And we've talked about some of them here, but that certainly has extended um, around the country and around the world. And, and I myself am, am um, involved in a, uh, a river recovery um, uh, effort uh, in the on the Klamath River in California and Oregon, and that was um, directly informed by the Penobscot uh, uh, project. So um, I think that one thing that the that the book does is um, I, I think it's inspiring to 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 read the different facets and how people uh, came together. And it really gives one hope, um, not just in the context of river recovery, but lots of other things that that can, that that can really happen. Yeah, and I'll end, I could keep going, building on Laura's, but um, we'll, we'll read the book and you'll see, you'll see the punchlines. Um, I think what you said in the very beginning, Laura, is super important. Um, we are, you know, it's people who remove dams, not fish, <laughs> we put them in, not fish. Um, and I just looking at the audience out, out there, um, thanks all of you for attending. And it really reminds me of the diversity of and huge amount of people and organizations that touched this project and many other projects, but this project in particular. And um, I saw some of our federal partners on the list and they were really, really, really crucial to this um, and we would not have gotten where we were and where we ended up without them. Um, our state partners were phenomenal um, through multiple administrations on, on both the federal and mm -hmm. national and John even, you know, I think in, you had a diff couple of different administrations. So um, 
you know, the stick-to-itiveness, I think, came from the relationships that we were able to put forward. And as Pete said, the vision and the multifaceted elements in this project. Um, and I think for me, that's the, you know, always the, the punchline is if you, you have to, you have to go slow to go fast. If you can't build the relationships, um, I don't know, get out of the, get out of the kitchen. <laughs> so, but I really want to end with thanking NRCM for hosting this event on behalf of the Penobscot River Restor Restoration Trust. So Laura for jumping back in and dusting off her slides and um, Andy and John and Pete, thanks for, for being part of this too. Thank you, Kate. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks all of you. Thank you. You've been listening to Maine Currents, Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. I'm Amy Brown. The talk you heard today was recorded on May 20th and has been edited to fit this format. The speakers were John Banks, Director of the Department of Natural Resources for the Penobscot Indian Nation, Laura Rose Day, former Director of the Penobscot River Restoration Project, Kate Dempsey, State Director of the Nature Conservancy in Maine, Pete Didesheim, Advocacy Director for the Natural Resources Council of Maine, and Andy Good, Vice President of U.S. Programs for the Atlantic Salmon Federation. I'll put links for the organizations the speakers represent in the archives of this show at weru.org for more information. Join me for Maine Currents on the first Tuesday of every month at 4 o'clock here on Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at weru.org.